Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In the 5th century, Christians waged a theological civil war that ended in a massive church split. The issue was over the dual natures of Christ. How was he both divine and human? Did he have a human soul and a divine soul? Did his two natures fuse into one new nature? Although such abstruse distinctions would hardly get anyone's blood boiling today, these doctrinal distinctives resulted in a zero-sum war for supremacy involving not only theological argumentation, but also political conniving and outright gangster tactics in the battles that led to the famous Council of Chalcedon in 451. Though church history textbooks often whitewash this period of theological creativity, this episode will give you a brief but unapologetic overview of the major players and their deeds in the dual natures controversy. Here now is episode 503, Early Church History, Part 21, The Dual Natures Controversy of the 5th Century. The dual natures topic is very complicated. And that's because there's new terminology, there are lots of new names, and it's not always clear how one belief system differs from another belief system. Uh, so I at times may oversimplify a little bit, but it's for the sake of giving it a, an initial overview of things. But I'm going to do my best. I want to begin with a quote from Athanasius. Athanasius lived a century before the controversy we're covering. But uh, Athanasius, writing in 357, said, It is, as we have frequently said, the characteristic aim of Holy Scripture to present the Savior in a twofold manner. First, in that he is word, the fulgence and wisdom of the Father. He always was and is God and Son. Subsequently, by taking flesh for our sake from a virgin, the God-bearing Mary, he became man. Now, in this quote, we have this interesting phrase here, God-bearing, which in the Greek is theotokos. This becomes the controversial word of the 5th century. Athanasius had used it, others had used it. Origen had used it, uh, as we'll see, even others beyond him. And what is Athanasius talking about? He's talking about this two-ness in Christ. Because Athanasius believed that Jesus was God in the same way that the Father is God, that the Son is God in the same way that the Father is God, homoousios, of the same substance, right? The question is, well, he's also a human being. So there's a two-ness to Christ. And fussing over this subject and trying to figure it out is really uh, what we call Christology, at least in this context. Athanasius continued, he said, He became man, he did not come into a man. It is essential to grasp this point in case the impious should fall into thinking and deceive others into thinking, that it was just like the former occasions on which the word came into the various saints, that now too he had come to reside in a man in the same way, sanctifying him and manifesting himself 
in him just as he had in others. So if God indwelt the man Jesus through the word, through his logos, he wouldn't be God. He would just be indwelt by God. But Athanasius believes that God became a human without ceasing to be God in some mysterious sense. And the question is, well, Athanasius, how exactly does that work? And we start seeing solutions, proposed solutions, to the the problem of how can he be God and man at the same time, starting with Apollinaris, who died in the year 382, a good friend of Athanasius, He's remembered as a heretic, but in his own time, he, th- he thought he was Orthodox. And so as often happens, he, he kind of like stepped a little bit off to the side, and uh, then history remembers him as a heretic. So Apollinaris writes, The Word of God commingled with the flesh in a way peculiar to himself. And in the occurrence of the sufferings of the flesh, the divine power preserved its own impassibility. And he is true God, that is, without flesh, revealed in flesh, perfect in his true and divine perfection, not two persons, or prosopo, or two natures, feces. Okay, so he's saying that God became revealed in flesh, but not as two different persons. So you have this divine Son who had always existed, then you're going to have this human baby in the womb. Sounds like two different persons, right? The, the, the son has his own consciousness, his own thoughts, his own mind of whatever sort God has. And then the baby, well, maybe not in the womb. It doesn't have much going on mentally. But like eventually it's going to emerge with a consciousness, uh, what they would call a soul. And so it gets a little crowded to have two in one. And so Apollinaris goes on to say, We confess that the word of God has not descended upon a holy man, a thing which happened in the case of the prophets, but that the word himself has become flesh without having assumed a human mind, i.e. a mind changeable and enslaved to filthy thoughts, but existing as a divine mind, immutable and heavenly. So the word became flesh without having assumed a human mind. The idea there is that he assumed a human body, but not the human mind. And he would even say maybe even a human soul, but not the rational part of the soul, depending on how you sliced it all up. Gregory of Nazianzus did not like Apollinarius' solution. I should say Apollinaris and Apollinarius, same person, just two different ways to pronounce their name. Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, If anyone does not believe that Holy Mary is Theotokos, God-bearer, he is severed from the Godhead. If anyone has put his trust in him as a man without a human mind, Apollinaris, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not assumed, which God has not assumed, he has not healed. This, this is kind of like a catchphrase for Gregory of Nazianzus and Greek Orthodoxy in general. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. But, says such a one, the Godhead took the place of the human intellect. How does this touch me? For Godhead joined to flesh alone is not man, nor to soul alone, nor to both apart from the intellect, 
which is the most essential part of man, keep then the whole man and mingle Godhead therewith, that you may benefit me in my completeness. So Gregory of Nazianzus, who is a very significant person, one of the three Cappadocians and architects of the 381 Council of Constantinople, says you need to have the whole human being and the whole God, and I'm not going to tell you how it works, but you've got to have the whole of both, and Apollonaris is wrong, and don't believe in him. In 381, at the Council of Constantinople that Gregory was behind and, and a big part of, they condemned Apollinaris and Apollinarianism. So we were left kind of without a solution. Now, I know Apollinaris is remembered as a heretic, but you have to appreciate the, the simplicity of his solution. You have this God being, it, it, it acquires a human body, but it just doesn't have a mind. Like, it works fine. It's a brilliant solution to the whole problem. But from the end of the 4th century onwards, we're going to reject that and say, look, that just, just can't be right. So now we've got to do something else. And there are different positions. I'm just going to clarify using like examples of like extreme versions of these positions. Maybe not extreme, but like I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. First up, we have Eutyches of Constantinople. Now, this is like 50 years later, 50, 60, 70 years later, and he is called into trial in Constantinople. Eutyches is a monk. He's not even a bishop, but he's called into trial before the archbishop or the patriarch, Flavian. And this is a transcript of that trial, which is great. It's like eyewitness testimony. How can you not love this? So the archbishop Flavian said to you, Eutyches, confess that the one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is homoousios, consubstantial, with his father as to his divinity, and consubstantial with his mother. So it's fully of the same substance as God and fully of the same substance as his mother, as human. Eutyches said, I have not said that the body of our Lord and God was consubstantial with us. I confess that the Holy Virgin is consubstantial with us, and that of her, our God, was incarnate. Laurentius said, Do you or do you not confess that our Lord, who is of the Virgin, is consubstantial and of two natures after the Incarnation? Eutyches said, I confess that our Lord was of two natures before the Union, but after the Union, one nature. I followed the teaching of the Blessed Cyril and the Holy Fathers and the Holy Athanasius because they speak of two natures before the Union, but after the union and incarnation, they speak not of two natures, but of one nature. So this belief, spelled out in, in this kind of way, is called monophysitism. Pretty, pretty simple, easy word, right? But it means one nature. So the idea is that you have this divine nature, the Son of God. You have this human nature from Mary. And together they form one new nature, monophysitism, or monophysitism. People say it different ways. Eutychus is a very clear example of this. And Eutychus says, this is what Cyril taught, this is what Athanasius taught, I'm just like them. A lot of people would dispute that very shortly after this. But uh, I don't think he's necessarily entirely wrong either. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Then we have the other position, which is represented 
by Leo of Rome in the year 449, just the year after what I was reading to you. Leo of Rome in his tome said, He who, abiding in the form of God, made man, was also made man in the form of a servant. For each nature retains its own distinctive character without loss. Our Lord took from his mother nature, not sin. Each form in communion with the other performs the function that is proper to it. That is, the word performing what belongs to the word and the flesh carrying out what belongs to the flesh. The one sparkles with miracles, the other succumbs to injuries. I love that part. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man are one person. Ooh, that's a, that's a really important phrase right there. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man are one person. For from our side, he possesses the humanity that is inferior to the Father, and from the Father, he possesses the divinity that is equal to the Father. So Leo of Rome is going to be an example for us of diophysitism. Diophysitism is belief in two natures. That after the incarnation, Christ has within him a divine nature and a human nature. These natures are preserved and not mixed together into one new nature. That's monophysitism. All right, let's go to the politics. Those are the theological categories roughly described. Let's go to the politics because as it turns out in the 5th century, the driving force is not calm theological reflection. No, not, in, not among these people in this period of time. No, no, no. It's politics. It's powerful when you combine theology and politics together, right? Uh, you get some really interesting stuff. There were powerful bishops fighting for supremacy in the 5th century. There was the Bishop of Constantinople. Super important. Why is he super important? Constantinople is the capital. Guess who lives in the capital with the Bishop of Constantinople? The Emperor. To have the ear of the Emperor, the Emperor will go to your church. That kind of influence is scary to the Bishops of Rome and the Bishop of Alexandria. Then you also have the Bishop of Antioch and the Bishop of Jerusalem who uh, make up altogether the Pentarchy, the five main bishops in the Mediterranean world at this time. Now, when a new bishop was assigned to Constantinople, the Bishop of Alexandria really wanted that to be somebody that, that was connected with Alexandria, that was in alliance with him. Power was very important to Alexandrian bishops ever since the 3rd century. Now we're in the 5th century. This has developed and grown. The Bishop of Alexandria is no longer content to be Bishop of Alexandria and Egypt and Ethiopia. Now they want to be Bishop also to control the capital in Constantinople. Meanwhile, the Bishop of Rome is over there and he's kind of just watching everything play out and he's waiting to make his move as well. So everyone's kind of vying for authority to control the Bishop of Constantinople. And wouldn't you know it, it was from the, in, from the city of Antioch that the Bishop of Constantinople was chosen during these controversies. All right, let's talk about John Chrysostom. Chrysostom is not what anybody ever called him. It's just what historians like to call him because he had a golden mouth. And that's the Greek phrase for golden mouth. He was a good preacher. 
He lived from 347 to 407. In the year uh, 397, the emperor Arcadius elevated him from being a preacher in Antioch as a representative of the way of Christianity in Antioch, the Antiochian school of theology, as opposed to the Alexandrian school of theology. Arcadius elevated John Chrysostom to be the bishop of Constantinople to preach in the capital city to have the most preeminent position of everyone. And Chrysostom took his job very seriously. He was a very moral man. He was ascetic. He did not take part in pleasure. And he conflicted with high society. I mean, Antioch, I'm sure, was a fine city, but it did not compare to Constantinople. Constantinople was the capital. And it had serious money, serious influence, serious sports, serious everything, serious walls and architecture and all the great stuff. And so Chrysostom gets there, and he refuses to have lavish social banquets, and he preaches strict Christian morals, and he criticized extravagance and wealth, especially among women who would wear these expensive flowing gowns and have this elaborate makeup and these expensive jewels, and Chrysostom would criticize that, which ran him afoul of the wife of the emperor, a woman named Eudoxia. Eudoxia was not happy, and she felt like Chrysostom was targeting her because she's the first lady. She's the preeminent woman of the city and therefore of the empire. Very powerful person. So in 401, Chrysostom preached a sermon where he pretty much just called Eudoxia Jezebel the whole time in the sermon. So it gets, it gets juicy, right? So at that point, she entered into battle with him, and she tried to oust him. Uh, then, wouldn't you know it, a group of 50 monks showed up in Constantinople. And they were in all kinds of trouble. They were led by four tall brothers. They were from Alexandria, and they had a grievance against their bishop there, a man named Theophilus. And they said that Theophilus had mistreated them, and they're coming to John Chrysostom to ask for help. So Theophilus... Let me talk, tell you about him just for a minute. Theophilus was the bishop of Alexandria, 384 to 412. He had picked fights with the pagans in the city of Alexandria, and he had won. He had succeeded in burning down the Serapion and the Mithraeum, two of the greatest pagan temples in the city of Alexandria. He was a very powerful man. He melted down their gods and then used them for his churches, the precious metals. Uh, the bishop in Alexandria at this time, Theophilus, was starting to become as powerful as the governor himself. The refugees wanted to hold Theophilus accountable, and they said they had been mistreated by him, so they came to Chrysostom, and this is what they said, according to Palladius. They say, give us dressing for our ghastly wounds. These guys were in bad shape by the time they got to Constantinople. Give us dressing for our ghastly wounds, inflicted through the frenzy of Pope Theophilus. They called him Pope, but he was of Alexandria, not of Rome, just to be clear. And see if you can bind up our swelling gashes, if even you give us no attention through respect to or fear of Theophilus, as the other bishops have done, there is nothing left for us to do but to go to the emperor and inform him of this man's ill doings to the disrepute of the church. So Chrysostom, being a good man, 
decided to negotiate with Theophilus, to talk to Theophilus and say, look, this is what these accusations are against you. Can you please answer for them? The Tall Brothers got the government involved and they called a council where Chrysostom would sit in judgment on Theophilus. So this is like Theophilus' worst nightmare, to have the Bishop of Constantinople sitting in judgment on him. So Theophilus shows up with a host of Egyptian bishops against the imperial decree and campaigned against Chrysostom vigorously and worked with Euthoxia, the wife of the emperor, to put together the 403 Synod of the Oak. You could tell it wasn't even in a church. It's called the Synod of the Oak because it was by an oak tree. It condemned Chrysostom and basically... Theophilus turned the whole thing against Chrysostom and made it about him and got dirt on him from the empress and from others who, you know, sent to spy out and condemned the one who was going to condemn him before he could get condemned. And an earthquake actually happened the night of his arrest and Eudoxia had a miscarriage as well and the people rioted because they loved John and they threatened to burn the imperial palace. So they decided to recall Chrysostom and bring him back. So he had been deposed in 403 at this Synod of the Oak. And then they said, you're out of here. You're fired. Get lost. Leave the city. And then all this stuff happened. So they said, all right, well, come back. Come back. It's okay. It's okay. So he comes back. And he's the bishop again. And Eudoxia put up. Uh, across from Chrysostom's church in September of that year. So he got deposed in July of 403. It's in September now. She put up this huge pillar with a statue of her on top, right across from his church. And then had all these elaborate dedication ceremonies that were disturbing and loud. And Chrysostom said that they were pagan. And he denounced this uh, statue across the way. So famously he said... Again, Herodias raves. Again, she is troubled. Again, she dances. Again, she desires to receive John's head on a platter. Because like John the Baptist, his name's also John. <laughs> In the year 404, Chrysostom writes a letter. He says, While we were pressing the request I have mentioned to have Theophilus brought to trial, a strong body of soldiers invaded the church on the great Sabbath itself, that's the eve of Easter, when evening was fast closing in, forcibly expelled all the clergy who were with us and surrounded the altar with arms. Women who were in the houses of prayer, unrobed in readiness for baptism on that day, fled naked in the face of this savage attack. Many of those were even thrown outside injured, and the fonts were filled with blood, and the holy water died red from their wounds." Chrysostom is asking for help in this letter against Theophilus to the Bishop of Rome. So he's trying to, to leverage that. What ended up happening is Arcadius, the emperor, had Chrysostom arrested and exiled him again. And in this case, he was swiftly brought away, originally sent to Cappadocia, then to Pituant, which is in modern-day Georgia. But when he made it to the village of Kumana, he was exhausted and he had a fever and they asked him to continue marching. They forced him to continue marching 
until he dropped to the ground and very shortly thereafter died. That was in the year 407. So, Empress Eudoxia and Bishop Theophilus outmaneuvered the unwitting Constantinopolitan bishop, even though he's allegedly the most powerful person in the world. They got him out of there and, in the end, even really had him killed, although in kind of a roundabout way by marching him and keep, keep him moving for years until he just wore out and died. Then, I tell you all this, not because it's relevant to 5th century Christology, but the same thing happened again, just with different people. But for, it's like you plug in the different names, and, the, and it's just like this, you're watching the same movie. It's like the sequel. So that's where we get Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril was the nephew of Theophilus. He was a prolific writer, a theologian, a bishop, a preacher, a politician. He strongly supported the Monophysite position, combining logos with impersonal humanity. He took part in the Synod of the Oak that his uncle had done, Theophilus, in the year 403. And Hans von Koppenhausen says about him, for the rest of his life, Theophilus regarded the removal of Chrysostom from his throne, which resulted from that synod as a justified triumph of his church. The memory of this event determined Cyril's career in the same way as Athanasius had been influenced by his participation in the Council of Nicaea. Cyril was the bishop of Alexandria, after Theophilus, he was a powerful, fierce man who was a heresy hunter and a dogmatic polemicist. He fought hard for supremacy over Jews and pagans and any Christians who didn't submit to his authority. He didn't have authority over everyone, but over the Christians, he claimed authority. I'll share with you three incidents. And I do this, and I kind of labor this point because... Cyril is known today as a saint, and everybody loves him, and he's lauded as this great theologian. Um, but he was a gangster. I'm going to just give it to you straight. He was a gangster, and I'm here in this church history class to tell you the truth. I'm not on either one of these sides, or if there's three, I'm not on any. So I'm just going to tell you like it is. So here's one incident. His first was to per persecute Novationist Christians, seizing their churches. These are Christians who, a century earlier had said, you cannot come back to church after you sacrifice to the gods during the Decian persecution of 250-251. The Novatius and his supporters were hardliners. And so they had remained separate from the rest of the church in Alexandria. And they had their own buildings. And so Cyril gets into power and he says, you don't have your own buildings anymore. I'm forcibly taking them from you. So he persecuted Christians. Number two, when Jewish violence erupted, killing some Christians, it's a whole long story, but like basically Cyril had an eavesdropper in a situation where he could find out details between the, the governor, a man named Orestes, and the Jewish leaders, and that guy was found, he was discovered, so they tortured him, it's a long story. But anyhow, the, the Jews retaliated by killing some Christians, and so Cyril responded by gathering together a huge number of people and marching to all the Jewish synagogues and forcibly banishing all the Jews from the city of Alexandria, saying you cannot live in this city anymore, as if he's the governor. And then the third incident involves his gangster monks. Okay, I don't know if you've ever heard those two words used together, gangster and monk, but 
In Alexandria, let me tell you, it was a thing, okay? Uh, this is from this really good book called From Nicaea to Chalcedon by Francis M. Young and Andrew Teal. They write, About 500 monks came to the city from the Nitrian desert to defend their patriarch Cyril and caught Orestes. Orestes is the governor of Alexandria, a very significant person. They caught him out in his chariot. They started abusing him and one threw a stone which struck Orestes on the head. The city population now rushed to the rescue, and the monk who had injured the prefect was tortured so severely that he died. Cyril again sent a report to the emperor, and much to everyone's disgust, treated the victim as a martyr for the cause of Christ. So these gangster monks attacked the governor of the entire city, and then when one of them got killed because of the mob, because they liked the governor. Uh, Cyril, instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry, or rebuking the monks, said, oh, he was a martyr. What a courageous man that he died for his faith. But none of this compares to Hypatia. It's said that in Alexandria, even to this day, you cannot preach Christianity without someone shouting out, what about Hypatia? Hypatia was murdered in the year 415. Socrates, the historian, gives us the details. He says, there was a woman at Alexandria named Hypatia who was so eminent in learning as to surpass all the philosophers of her own time. A super brilliant woman. For all men, on account of her extraordinary dignity and virtue, revered and admired her. For as she had frequent interviews with Orestes, the governor, it was calumniously reported among the Christian populace that it was she who prevented Orestes from being reconciled to the bishop. Some of them, therefore, these are the monks, hurried away by a fierce and bigoted zeal whose ringleader was a reader named Peter, waylaid her returning home. They dragged her from her carriage, took her to the church called Caesarea, where they completely stripped her and then murdered her with tiles, tiles from the roof. After tearing her body in pieces, they took her mangled limbs to a place called Sinaron and there burnt them. This affair brought no small opprobrium, not only upon Cyril, but also upon the whole Alexandrian church. So the murder of Hypatia, which, who's to say? Did Cyril order the hit? Or were these guys just acting on their own example of seeing Cyril in such a brutal manner previously? They thought he would be approved of this. We have no indication he denounced this horrib horrible, unchristian behavior. Grabbing somebody, kidnapping them, stripping them, killing them, and then cutting them to pieces, and then burning the pieces. I mean, just bizarre behavior in the city of Alexandria. Cyril disliked a man named Nestorius of Antioch, who had grown up in Syria, because Nestorius was now the bishop of Constantinople. And that's really where I need to go next. I need to give you a little background on Cyril so you understand who you're dealing with here. This is no chump, okay? And now we introduce Nestorius. Nestorius became the bishop of Constantinople. Again, another guy from Antioch with Syrian leanings. He, uh, well, as Syrian background, he gets elevated in the year 428 to Constantinople. The first sermon Nestorius gives, he says to the emperor, 
Give me, O emperor, the earth purged of heretics, and I will give you heaven as a recompense. Assist me in destroying the heretics, and I will assist you in vanquishing the Persians. Sounds like a pretty hardcore dude, right? Nestorius, in his own time, was not a heretic. Nestorius was a heresy hunter himself and considered himself as a preeminent defender of orthodoxy. First act within five days of taking the bishopric of Constantinople was to find out where the Arians were meeting secretly and privately and to go to their church and to destroy it. This is Nestorius. He's not, he's not some outside wacko with weird ideas. He's an insider. He's powerful. He's important. And as he's having this church destroyed, this like secret Arian church in the city of Constantinople, the Arians see that their church is being destroyed and they throw fire at it and it lights on fire all the buildings around it as well. And a lot of people die as a result of this. And the city then gets mad at Nestorius because he's really the one that instigated this trouble. And they call him incendiary as a, maybe like a nickname. Nestorius also persecuted other Christians, Novatianists and Cordodecimans. In 429, Nestorius had a presbyter from Antioch, a man named Anastasius, preach in the church at Constantinople. So he's an Antiochian preacher. He's like, all right, come preach at my church. You know, this happens. You get a guest speaker from time to time. And Anastasius said, let no one call Mary Theotokos, for Mary was but a human being, and it is impossible that God should be born of a human being. So he takes kind of a hard-line position. And Nestorius doesn't rebuke his friend. He backs him up. And Nestorius, who doesn't really have a problem with Theotokos, realizes that in the city of Constantinople, there are some who like to say Theotokos, which means that she's the bearer of God. And there are others who like to call her Anthropotokos, which means the bearer of man. And he says, let's just call her Christotokos the bearer of Christ, it'll make everybody happy, and we can avoid the controversy. But the simple fact of the matter is, at this time in Constantinople, worshiping Mary was already becoming a big uh, movement. Nestorius backed him up and got in all kinds of trouble because of it. Mary had been called Theotokos prior to this by Origen in the 3rd century, Eusebius and Athanasius in the 4th century. I mentioned Gregory before. Cyril of Alexandria seized his opportunity, and he says, you see that bishop of Constantinople? He doesn't believe that Mary is Theotokos. She's not, God. She's not the bearer of God. And uh, so he starts to campaign against him, and he finds an able ally in the sister of the emperor, a woman named Pulcheria, who was the daughter of Eudoxia. These people know how to play politics. These are, these are, we're talking about somebody that's raised in, it, in the middle of the, the royal court that knows how the city really functions. She was a big Mary supporter, Polcaria was. In fact, as a child, she took an oath as a, to be a virgin for life. She was a consecrated nun. She had a huge influence on the church. In fact, when Nestorius got there, he was shocked to see that in the place where you take communion, there was a big painting of Pulcheria behind it in the church. And 
that they used her stole, which is kind of like a wrap that a person would wear, as a covering for the altar in the big church. So Nestorius, as soon as he came into position, he took down her image. He got rid of her stole. He's like, we're going to use our own stole. We're not going to use the the empress's stole. And uh, we get this recorded confrontation. Moreover, on the great Passover, this is from the letter of Cosmos. Moreover, on the great Passover feast, which is Easter, the emperor used to receive communion in the Holy of Holies. Polcaria desired the same privilege. She convinced Bishop Sicinius, and she received communion with the emperor in the Holy of Holies. Nestorius, who's a new bishop, did not admit this. But one day, when she was making her way, as usual, to the Holy of Holies, which is a part of the church, Nestorius saw her and asked what it meant. Archdeacon Peter explained the matter to him. Nestorius ran. He met her at the door of the Holy of Holies and stopped her, and he did not allow her to enter. Queen Polcaria was irritated with him and said to him, Let me enter, as is my custom. But he said to her, This place should only be trodden by priests. She said to him, Why, have I not given birth to God? He said to her, You, you have given birth to Satan. And he drove her out of the door of the Holy of Holies. She left irritated went to find the emperor and told him the thing. The emperor said to her, By your life, my sister, and by the crown which is on your head, I will not cease until I have taken vengeance on him. From that day, he no longer had any influence with the emperor. So this is quite a juicy story here. But you can see Polcaria is identifying herself with Mary, as if she is Mary, as if she's representing Mary, she's saying, Did I not, have, I, have I, woman, not given birth to God? And how, how do you deny me to take communion with the men? And he says, you gave birth to Satan. And uh, things went downhill from there. So <laughs> it didn't take her long, though. Polcaria and Cyril moved quickly, and they were able to instigate a council Just two years later, in the year 431, it's called the Council of Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, uh, if you've studied New Testament history, you know that Ephesus was the home of Artemis, the famous goddess of the Ephesians, a city that was used to favoring a female deity. And so I don't think it was any mistake that in Ephesus, the worship of Mary was strong and that Cyril was smart and knew that Having a council in Ephesus instead of Alexandria or Constantinople would be a good location. So the council of Ephesus resulted in Cyril basically chairing the council and having Nestorius condemned. Nestorius later wrote about it, and this is what he said. Cyril is therefore prosecutor and accuser, and I the defendant. He was the whole tribunal. For whatever he said was immediately repeated by the rest. He did everything with arbitrary authority, and after ousting from his authority the emperor's emissary, set himself up in his place. I was summoned by Cyril, who assembled the council, by Cyril, who presided, who was judge, Cyril, who was accuser, Cyril, who was bishop of Rome, Cyril. Cyril was everything. This uh, historian is complaining that he was mis. Handled, uh, that he was unfairly treated at this council, but 
you know, history is what it is. To this day, everyone will tell you, Council of Ephesus was uh, where Nestorius was deposed. And what uh, Cyril alleged Nestorius taught was that he divided the substances within Christ, the human from the divine, by saying Mary did not give birth to the divine, she wasn't Theotokos. You see how these two are related. The, the bearer of God and the two natures is really two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. Isidore later wrote, Many of those who were assembled at Ephesus speak satirically of you, Cyril, as a man bent on pursuing his private animosities, not as one who seeks correct belief in the things of Jesus Christ. He is sister's son to Theophilus, they say, and in disposition takes after him just as the uncle openly expended his fury against the inspired and beloved John, so also the nephew seeks to set himself up in his turn. Hans von Kampenhausen says, From a historical standpoint, the victory which he, Cyril, was to gain over Nestorius must be regarded as the first great triumph of the popular worship of Mary. So Theodosius II had Nestorius exiled to a monastery in Antioch. Nestorius, thankfully, doesn't get marched to death, so that's good news. A little progress there. He lives actually quite a while afterwards, and uh, only fairly recently did we discover some more works of Nestorius that I've already been quoting to you from that uh, indicate that he did live for quite a while after this. All right, so in 444, Cyril died. The meanest thing I've ever seen written about somebody who's just died, I have to read to you. It's, it's by, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it's by Theodoret. But uh, it gives you a flavor for how people felt about this Cyril of Alexandria in his own time, before he was whitewashed and called a saint, and everyone recognized him as a you know, famous, important person, a doctor of the church. Relief at Cyril's death. This is uh, Theodoret of Cyrus. He says, at last... With difficulty, the villain Cyril has gone. The good and the gentle pass away all too soon. The bad prolong their life for years. Sometimes it seems like that, huh? The Lord has lopped him off like a plague and taken away the reproach from the children of Israel. His survivors are indeed delighted at his departure. The dead maybe are sorry. There is some ground of alarm, lest they should be so much annoyed at his company as to send him back to us. Tell the guild of undertakers to lay a very big, heavy stone upon his grave, for fear he should come back again. <laughs> Let him take his new doctrines to the shades below. The wretch knew no rest from his crimes, but went on attempting greater and more grievous ones till he died. What heck of an obituary, right? But whatever I have to say about Cyril, it's so much more for his successor, Dioscorus. Dioscorus became the Pope of Alexandria in the year 444. He had been the personal secretary of Cyril. In 448, the patriarch Flavian of Constantinople condemned Eutyches. I had read you from the transcript of that trial, that synod, earlier. So Flavian is the new bishop of Constantinople after Nestorius, and Flavian calls Eutychus, who believes in this one nature ideology, monophysitism, and has him condemned. In Egypt, they lean towards monophysitism, and so they don't like this. Dioscorus is going to do something about it. He calls the Second Council of Ephesus in the year 449. It's convened by the Emperor Theodosius II, 
and Pope Dioscorus of Alexandria presided, he got 127 bishops together for this council. Although you won't hear much about this council in the history books, it's not recognized as one of the famous seven, but it was quite something. Leo had his tome. So the, the Bishop of Rome had written a tome, a book, describing the two natures and has sent it by an emissary, a guy named Hilarius. Must have been a real comedian. Uh, just kidding. But anyhow, Hilarius later became Pope in his own right. But Hilarius was not allowed to speak. He was not allowed to present Leo's tome. Instead, Dioscoros, this Bishop of Alexandria, took over the whole situation. He condemned... Flavian, the bishop of Constantinople. So once again, for the third time, we have an Alexandrian bishop condemning in a council the bishop of Constantinople. And he reinstates Eutyches. And somehow or other, the bishop juvenile of Jerusalem was in league with Dioscoros for this. Before it got crazy, Flavian the bishop of Constantinople, got a letter out with Hilarius to Rome, to Leo, uh, about what was going on at the council. And after they had made the decision, Dioscorus went outside the building where he had a, a mob of a thousand monks present, and he read to them the pronouncement on Flavius that he is deposed and that he is guilty, instigating mob violence against Dioscoros or against Flavian. They went in, his supporters went in, and they just beat the tar out of Flavian, the bishop of Constantinople. They beat him so severely that after they were done, they arrested Flavian and exiled him. He only lasted three days until he died of wounds sustained by Dioscoros's mob at the Second Council of Ephesus. When Pope Leo of Rome heard about this, he called it latrocinium, which means the robber council. Philip Jenkins calls it the gangster synod. And uh, this maybe communicates a little better in our time. So it's just, it's just chaos, okay? Just crazy manipulative politics and power, uh, seeking after power. And then the craziest thing happened, the emperor, Theodosius II, in the year 450, was riding his horse. He fell off his horse and he broke his neck. And so you know who, came, who stepped into the power vacuum? His sister, Pulcheria. She managed to find someone to marry her, even though she's a nun and she's 50. And she marries this older general, a guy named Marcion, not to be confused with Marcion of, of old, um, and she marries him, and she and he together call another council to undo the last council because at the last council, her bishop got his butt kicked. I mean, I mean, literally killed the bishop of Constantinople. And she couldn't abide the bishop of Alexandria controlling the bishop of Constantinople when she wanted to control the bishop of Constantinople. Thus, we get the August Council of Chalcedon of 451. For that council... Polcaria and Marcion, they called together 500 bishops in attendance. Huge, huge council. Biggest council yet. All were Eastern bishops, except two who were fleeing from Vandal persecution in North Africa, and there were four representatives of Leo I, the bishop of Rome. But there were no Western bishops other than that. So once again, we can't call it an ecumenical council. It didn't rep represent global Christianity. It just represented the East they decided to restore the bishops that Dioscoros had deposed. 
and they decided to return Flavian's body to be honorably buried in Constantinople, and they deposed Dioscoros. Uh, there's a juicy story about uh, how Polcaria went up to Dioscoros and slapped him in the face, but I could not find any historical primary source for that, so I'll just leave it to you to confirm or deny that. But allegedly, she, she smacked him in the face and knocked out some of his teeth, which he sent back home to Alexandria and said, this is the fruit of my labor. Yeah. It's a good story, even if it's not true. Um, but uh, <laughs> Leo's tome was finally read at this council, the Council of 451. It was not allowed to be read at the last Council of 449. And everyone said, oh, this is good. Let's go with Leo's tome. It sounds good. Two natures, one person. Uh, so they had a lot of debate about it. How do we word it? it? It took them a long time. There was a lot of other stuff that I can't get into the details with, but this is what they came up with in the year 451. This is the definition of Chalcedon. On account of those who attempt to pervert the mystery of the incarnation, shamelessly and senselessly babbling that he who was born of the Holy Mary was a mere man. It has accepted the synodical letters of the blessed Cyril, pastor of the Church of Alexandria, to Nestorius and to the Orientals in keeping with those creeds for the confutation of the folly of Nestorius, the letter of the ruler of the greatest and elder Rome, that's Leo, the most blessed and most holy Archbishop Leo, written to the saintly Archbishop Flavian for the overthrow of the impiety of Eutyches is a pillar of support to all against the heterodox. So now at least maybe you know some of those names, right? Uh, so this is really in the Council of Chalcedon, the sort of official declaration of it. What are they doing with Cyril? He's not a gangster. He's blessed. He's, of course, he's deceased now, but like, he's blessed. Like, everybody wants to quote Cyril and say he's such a great theologian. However, Nestorius is called folly. So he's remembered as being foolish, as being silly, as dividing Christ into two. And then you have Leo, and he is, he's considered most blessed and most holy. So he gets a double shout out. Bishop of Rome. This is the first time the Bishop of Rome in any way contributes meaningfully to the, the, these big councils, which is crazy to think about considering the later history of the Bishop of Rome. But uh, this is where the bishops of Rome really start to, uh, to assert themselves, even though he still didn't go. And then they, this guy's dead too, but they call him saintly, Bishop Flavian. They say Eutyches is impiety. You know, we don't like him. Eutyches, by the way, basically just agreed with, with Cyril. You know, they might disagree in exactly how to word things, but they're both monophysites, more or less, right? And Nestorius, who's foolish, agrees with Leo, who is most blessed. This is such a confusing period of time. Wherefore, they continue, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice, that's also a lie, they just mention all the voices that diverge from them. Uh, we all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the same consisting of a reasonable soul and a body. That's against Apollinaris. Of one substance with the Father, there's homoousios, as touching the Godhead, the same of one substance with us, homoousios for us, as touching the manhood. Like us in all things apart from sin, begotten of the Father before the ages, is touching the Godhead, the same in the last days for us and for our salvation, born from the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, 
as touching the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged into two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and concurring into one person and one subsistence, uh, word hypothesis, not as if Christ were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the beginning spoke concerning Him. Yeah, right. And our Lord Jesus Christ instructed us, and the creed of our fathers has handed down to us. So that's the definition of Chalcedon. Uh, it's interesting, Nestorius, who was exiled, when he read the Tome of Leo, this is what he said. This is Nestorius again from his own mouth. He says, For the bishop of Rome read what had been done against Eutyches, and he condemned Eutyches because of his impiety. As for myself, Nestorius, when I had found and read his writing, I thank God that the Church of Rome had an orthodox and irreproachable confession of faith, although in so far as concerns me, she had come to a different decision. So in a lot of church history books, they'll tell you, well, Eutyches was a wacko who taught this one new nature business, and Nestorius was a wacko who taught this radical two natures business. It's not so simple, okay? It's not so simple. When Nestorius heard the Creed of Chalcedon, he said, yeah, sounds good. So you can't say theology was the driving force of this. This was politics combined with theology. They really did care about the theology, don't get me wrong, but it was politically driven as well. Chalcedon was never accepted by about, I don't know, maybe half of Christianity. The Coptic Church of Egypt rejected it. The Ethiopian Church rejected it. The Church of Syria rejected it. The Orthodox Church of Armenia rejected it. The Assyrian Church or the Persian Church rejected it. Eventually, when uh, the churches were established in India, in China, they were associated with Nestorian Christianity. They rejected the Creed of Chalcedon of 451. And many of these churches to this day will not agree to it, although a lot of these things have been worked out. Chalcedon split the church in half and instigated, guess what? More controversy. Just like these councils do. Controversy over Christ having either one or two natures raged for the whole next century until the Council of Justinian called in 553. So this is 451. 553 is the next big council, and let me tell you, that didn't solve it either. I think this was the natural outworking of the speculations of Alexander of Alexandria way back in 318 when he said, the Son is eternal. And then, shortly thereafter, just a few years later, when Constantine at the Council of Nicaea said, let's call it homoousios. Let's call it of the same substance, the, the relationship of the Father and the Son. I think all of this chaos that follows is the fruit of that seed that was planted in the three, early 300s. That's my opinion. I don't know if I could prove that. But that seems to be what happened. Ne the next layer and the next layer and the next layer outworking from it. If you want to learn more about the 5th century, this book is so good. It's called Creeds, Councils, and Controversies, edited by J. Stevenson and revised by W.H.C. Friend. And what's great about this book 
is that it gives you, it's a reader. A reader is just giving you primary sources. It's, it's not a, like a history book. It's just a collection of primary sources. So it'll give you a lot of these statements by these different people, and you make sense of it as you, as you wish. You be the historian. And if you're looking for a more juicy account, Philip Jenkins' book called Jesus Wars, subtitle, How Four Patriarchs, Three Queens, and Two Emperors Decided What Christians Would Believe for the Next 1,500 Years. Yeah, it's a little bit more of an enjoyable read or depressing, depending on your perspective, but uh, I would recommend it if you're interested in the 5th century Christological controversies. Let's review. Deciding how the divine and human natures worked in Christ became the chief focus for many Christians in the 5th century. Apollinaris of Laodicea proposed that the logos, or word, replace the human mind, the rational part of the soul, in Christ. It's called Apollinarianism. Eutyches proposed that Christ was one nature after the union of the divine and human, which is called monophysitism or monophysitism. Pope Leo I said the two natures retain their distinctive characters in one person of Christ, diophysitism. Nestorius allegedly taught that the two natures in Christ were not united in one person. That's called Nestorianism, though this was probably a misrepresentation of Cyril of Alexandria. Powerful Alexandrian bishops worked with powerful empresses to outmaneuver and depose Constantinopolitan bishops John Chrysostom in 404 and Nestorius in 431. Nestorius, and we could also add to that Flavian or Flavian. Nestorius tried to steer people away from calling Mary Theotokos, God-bearer, by calling her Christotokos, Christ-bearer, but this offended many. Alexandrian bishops from Theophilus to Cyril to Dioscoros increasingly used gangster tactics to intimidate, coerce, beat, and even kill their theological political opponents. And after this, the Egyptian church is no longer part of the rest of, the, of Christianity in the Mediterranean world. They're, they're out after this. And they're out still to this day. It's called the Coptic church now. They're not part of the Catholic church or the Orthodox church. They're a separate Church. The Chalcedonian definition of 451 condemned Nestorius and Eutyches while endorsing Cyril and Leo, promoting a diophysite statement of two natures in one person's united but not confused. Even though, after reading it, I dare you not to be confused. <laughs> Seriously, like, I think everyone should just read the, the definition of Chalcedon all the way through, like, no, no commentary, nothing. Just, just read what they wrote and just be like, can you imagine how this makes sense? You know, it's complicated. Though trumpeted as orthodox and universal or Catholic, Chalcedon alienated a huge portion of Christianity, including the Coptic Church, Ethiopian Church, Syrian Church, Armenian Church, and Assyrian Church. In our next session, we'll turn our attention to the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, and examine Christianity in the 6th century. We just looked at the 5th century. We're going to look at the 6th century next in our last session of early church history. Well, that brings this episode to an end. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find number 503, the dual natures controversy of the 5th century, and leave your feedback there. 
Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Restitutio SF and on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Restitutio that you can interact with others on a wide range of different theological and historical topics. Well, we got another new review on Apple Podcasts. This is from Brad X with the title Terrific, who writes, A great podcast to listen to and learn about the God and religion of the Bible. What the Bible really says about God, how he wants you to get to know him, may surprise you. Well, thanks so much, Brad X, for writing that review and giving us a five-star rating. It really does help out. If you would like to do a review either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, uh, either one, I would certainly appreciate it. I also wanted to mention an upcoming event I'm coordinating at my home church in the Albany area of New York, just uh, about 10 minutes north of Albany, New York called Kingdom Fest. This is a weekend for individuals, for families. We have a full kids program during the weekend, and we have speakers come in from outside the area, and uh, I will be speaking along with a number of others, and we have really great worship music and usually lots of free time on Saturday afternoon to hang out and spend time together uh, with some optional sport activity type things. And I'll let you know more about this event, like the theme and who our guest speaker is in future weeks. But I just wanted to let any of you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and would like to come to an event and meet folks in person, this would be a great place to gather. And and so that's going to be September 15th to the 17th in Latham, New York at Living Hope Community Church. And I'll probably do another quick advertisement here about it in a week or two just once we get some more details about that event but if you're up for a little bit of travel uh, we do have a lot of folks that come in from outside the state of new york Uh, a lot of folks fly in drive in from the region and we'd be happy to uh to have you join us so stay tuned for more information on that but save the date we'd love to see We'd love to see lots of folks coming to that event. It's a great time, really give you an encouragement and a boost entering into the fall and the winter. Well, that's enough for today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitudio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.